Hi, welcome to the Get Curious with me, Nadja Vitarovic, and today we have a really exciting guest. Today we have my older sister, Isidora Vitarovic. I don't know if I should say your last name. Um, and uh, she's here with us to discuss education, as general as that sounds. But she's done her degree in educational sciences. She's just about to complete her first master's in educational sciences. And then she's about to start her second master's in, Dora, could you say? Yeah, educational policy for global development. Hi, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay, so that's why you have like such a, feel like an apt degree for what we're discussing today so I felt like that was really good to bring you on for this because this is such an interesting topic don't you think? I completely agree I mean it's my field so it's kind of a given that I find it interesting but yeah hopefully um, I can provide maybe some some theory or some you know empirical knowledge um, about the topics that we're about to discuss but yeah this should be an interesting one. Yeah so you live in Belgrade, Serbia, and I live in, well, I'm going to uni in St Andrews, Scotland, and you're about to do your master's in Barcelona. So our education growing up is slightly different because we've gone through different systems in different countries. So yes, which I only think I only think that that's going to make this conversation even more interesting because our actual educational experiences were quite different. So obviously you went through your entire schooling up until uni in England, and now you're in Scotland. And then I did everything so far in Belgrade. And now I'm only going to sort of explore educational systems outside of my own country. But I think, yeah, I think our different experiences will only make it more fun. (laughs) Yeah. Are you excited to go to uni in Barcelona? Do you think it's going to be like noticeably different from in Belgrade? I mean, I expect so, because just different cultures have a way of finding themselves in education. Like, you know, I think that certainly things are going to be different. And not only am I going to Barcelona, but the second semester I'm in Germany. So um, I think it'll definitely be different and the cultural diversity will be apparent, I'm I'm assuming. But, you know, I'll tell, we'll speak again once I complete a semester or two. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I've mentioned education in some of the previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of interweaves in a lot of the conversations um, because it's just so important in literally everyday life. When I first started thinking about what I was going to say about education, it ha- it goes through every part of our life. So it's political, it writes yeah. history, it empowers women, it's in- inside and outside of the classroom. And it really shapes the way we think, the way we think of the world, what our basic facts are. First time I ever really had a conscious thought about education as like from a outside perspective, kind of, we're always in the education system from like the very beginning. But the first time I really looked at it from the outside was um, in history when we were learning about like the Nazis and Hitler um, in Germany. What about you, Dora? When was the first time you really thought about education as kind of an external thing? I honestly think the same. I find that these ideologically extreme um, regimes and systems make it really easy for us to explicitly see the effects on education as well as the effects of education, really, in creating a 
homogenous way of thinking and a homogenous society. So I would agree with you. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. When you start seeing it be like manipulated. Um, I think it's also if, in retrospect, we obviously have 2020. So when you see it being manipulated that way, then you start noticing, wow, how effective it is. And I, I remember from when I was learning it, there was like some things which really stood out mm-hmm. to me, especially with the Hitler Youth. And I researched them again. And so there was like three things, but I guess we can discuss them as we go along. So the first one was that he removed all Jewish teachers and all Mm -hmm. teachers that like all teachers had to share Nazi ideas. And for me, that spoke volumes for the importance of like the need for diversification of teachers and professors and things. And we always talk about that, especially right now in this this like climate. And we're talking about having more diverse teachers in every single range from like political views to like the color of your skin to your religions and things like that and when how he how Hitler chose to manipulate that is really interesting and really shows that it's kind of it is an important thing because he chose to change it yeah I completely agree I think representation is just so important and I think there's been a lot of talk um, about representation in the media um, especially from the race perspective Um, but I think you know representation in our actual sort of worldly experiences meaning we all go to school or kindergarten and we see these teachers and we interact with them and if they have uh, certain views or a certain color of skin or just are of a certain way of life that's so um, foreign to us or like unattainable to us, I think that we start thinking that that's the only relevant or valuable way and that our own really isn't. So representation, I think, is really important in all levels of education. So from leadership levels to actual, you know, working with students, teacher representation. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like exposing you. So you're doing your dissertation on transformative leadership. <laughs> yes. So this is like something you know everything about. Well, I wouldn't say everything, but yeah, I am. I am researching <laughs> transformational leadership in education, and um, yeah, it's really mostly about the way that we embrace multiculturality and diversity, which is just so present in today's societies, and then we. Um, make make room for it and make it valuable in education and we actually use it to create um a more quality education rather than um yeah rather than a system we have now which sort of just has very strong biases um towards the dominant um the dominant class and ethnic group and just the dominant population in general and definitely that's the same thing when women kind of dominate the teaching field at least in the UK and Mm -hmm. that's just like you kind of get this impression from an early age that you see females as your caretakers as your teachers and that forms your kind of societal view on how women are kind of placed in society you see your mother you see your teacher and you know for the first parts of your life you don't you're not really interacting with anything else other than your home life and your education Absolutely. I completely agree. And then we can take take it a step further. And um, I don't really have the data on England, but in Serbia, the case is that um, men are normally in leadership positions, even though the field of education is a very like female dominated field. Um, So we actually see, as you said, we see women as caretakers, we see them as, um, you know, teachers and, and educationalists. But when we look at positions of power, it's 
men and from a young age we're actually taught that that's the way it's supposed to be because that's the way it is in our in every single one of our experiences definitely and that's where I think it's so important education going inside and outside of the classroom the things that we like explicitly teach and the things that we're just kind of slowly drilling into our brains mm-hmm. so so back on track mm-hmm. to the hit <laughs> um so <laughs> the second thing that he kind of what I noticed was that he changed the curriculum mm-hmm. and so there was amongst other things but what stood out to me was that he added more history and uh with and history that kind of glorified Germany and then removed religious education and for me that was really interesting because I mean the victors write history but also yeah. it's very interesting that each individual country and we've had conversations about this because when we I learned history I learned very like England centric and you at well when we were studying at the same time you kind of had much more of a worldview history I feel like yeah I would I would say so as well but I do think that um obviously we were more centered on our own countries um and I think that's the case for every single country and every single national system of education I just think that um again I'm, I'm loving this Hitler example because um basically these more extreme systems give us an opportunity to really look at things and analyze them and see them clearly but we do have to keep in mind that this is actually a thing that every country does now this is not obviously it's not to compare uh, any modern country with a fascist Nazi regime (laughs) Um, but it is just the thing that every country does they sort of um, help push certain values and a certain um, outlook on on life and and ways of thinking through education and education is the perfect system to do it through really Um, but yeah history is one of the the subjects that normally the content of the subject is quite heavily regulated and um, they're actually something that's in in a lot of countries but I can speak for the region the Balkan region they're considered like um, nation building subjects Um, and what that basically (laughs) means is that um, the the subject of history and and the events that we do learn about are shaped in a way that um, you know pushes a certain narrative that um, the country or the government the the, um, government of the time is is trying to to push and they're trying to create this narrative in the minds of students who will of course grow up and be you know they'll actually build the society they'll like be members of the society so um we we definitely learn history not only do we learn different events and different events are considered relevant but we also learn that certain events happened a certain way that maybe really isn't true because you know there's more sides to every story (laughs) so I'm actually going to mention an example which I found super interesting so a historian from Belgrade uh, her name is Dubravka Stojanovic she's amazing and she did some research Mm -hmm. with um, her colleagues fellow historians from Bulgaria and Turkey and Croatia and um, these four countries are we share a lot of history um, and they actually did research on how, yeah. Um, so they actually did research on how certain events were portrayed in textbooks um, from the different countries. And you know, I was shocked to find out that we legitimately learn that 
a certain thing happened involving another country and then that other country learns it a completely different way um so right. and not they yeah they talk about uh, let's say the second balkan war and um, we learned that it happened in 1913 and it happened because um greece and serbia were betrayed by bulgaria and so we just had to attack them however bulgarians learn it as <laughs> Oh, we were allies for so long and then they turned on us. So um it's I think it's just very interesting. And then sometimes just the facts yeah. get jumbled up, but we actually grow up believing that that was the case and that feeds into the narrative that we have on our own country that we were never the aggressors, we only, you know, attacked when we needed to and so on. And I think every country yeah, has this in one way or another. So I'm assuming in England I don't know how much you learn for instance about the um colonization. Oh, like literally nothing. Absolutely nothing. That was something that I did myself in the research that I did for the episode about racism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did not know like I'd heard of Windrush, but I did not know about it. And about I mean, we learned so much about the world wars. I did not know that we had like the countries that we were colonizing that they were bringing soldiers yeah. to fight for us yeah. on the front lines and that's there's historical proof that shows that these soldiers from colonized nations were coming and they were putting them on the front lines to die first and there's archaeological digs and things that show and prove this and it's just crazy because the amount that we learn like for me, it's especially shocking is in the world wars because the amount that we learn on them and for that completely to be cut out. But then, of course, we have like the concentration camps in Africa and everything like that is just completely and whole of NATO. Because obviously I have like we have Serbian background. Mm-hmm. Um, I only really learned about NATO and the things that NATO had done involving like Serbia mm-hmm. and things like that. I only learned through like my parents and through you and stuff. So, yeah. Very interesting. And also I wanted to mention when you said um, shaping a history that yes. makes you want to like go into society that like serves the society, right? Like serves mm-hmm. the country. So whether that be like be in the military or even be in the NHS or in like healthcare or be teachers or but basically participate in a society because you want to participate in a country that you believe in yeah just be a productive member of society rather than someone who's trying to change it reform it you know yeah um that was so interesting okay next one (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I jump very quickly from like point to point but I I like the little tangents that we go on but so then the third thing that I learned was um that girls and boys were slowly separated in what they learned so boys learned PE and more PE and girls started learning home economics and that for me was kind of I understood because that's traditionally what has happened yeah. in, like in the past and we've moved on from that but then what kind of really shocked me was that they said only 11% of uni places went to girls and that was really for me like this recognition of like strategic oppression of women and like drove home to me this emphasis on making sure that in I mean in every course in uni that there should be as as equal gender split as there can be and especially in STEM subjects and things like that because that really gives like a recognition to this type of 
if we stop girls from going to higher education, it will do something for our society that is good for us in a fashion I'm nodding. Society. Yes, I'm nodding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nodding completely all the way through. Yeah. Gender is a very big issue for me. And, like, I want mm-hmm. to do a whole series on, like, different aspects of feminism, things like that. It's sometimes even difficult for me to to actually talk about, um, you know, things like percentages of women that go to university when it's hard to do that without acknowledging our privilege where we live in the Western world, in a Western society, both of us do. And we were both, mm-hmm. you know, privileged enough to not only be able to go to school, but encouraged to. And I think that we just... You know, it's 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 just you, when you think about all of the women all around the world who don't have that opportunity and who are not only sort of discouraged, but actually are discriminated against and, and just can't get an education. I think it's um, it's quite difficult to talk about to talk about uni percentages as as silly as that sounds, because, of course, of course, there should be an even split. And of course, women should go into all all fields and especially STEM, which I think is um, sort of known for being a man's field for whatever reason. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I think I think women in education can be a difficult subject to talk about, especially for people who are in education, because you're just aware of these these crazy blatant discrimination that goes on and it's just it, it's just very sad and difficult to talk about really even though it definitely should be spoken about no 100% like I mean the statistics about even just when we talk about uni but like the illiterate population of the world mm-hmm. two-thirds of it is women mm-hmm. and that's just I mean wild and the, it's, it just goes all into the child marriages and just even even sanitary products. Like when, when girls get periods and, and they don't have the sanitary products, they can't go to school because it's a mess. So, yes, <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's pra- like there's practical things that just they're not facilities for them to actually participate in school. And that's from an early age. Yeah. No, I do you remember how old were you or like what you were doing when you found out about um, Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani activist? Because I was I remember I was in, I think, my first year of secondary school and I right. I found out about this and I was shocked that she, she was she was shot and she was shot because by the Taliban in in Pakistan because she was uh, um, along with her father advocating for a girl's right to education and she was one of the privileged girls in Pakistan who got to go to school and she was an activist who was trying to you know uh, allow the same opportunity for her friends and acquaintances and you know fellow fellow Pakistani girls and she got shot yeah. because of it and she you know barely lived and is now this amazing activist who has a foundation and is trying to do good around the world but i remember being in secondary school and just being shocked by the fact that there is a part of the world that i you know i know about it it's not you know it's it's not this unknown thing <laughs> it's you know yeah. quite quite a talked about country actually and you know, girls can't go to school. And if they try to advocate for it, they get shot. That just was crazy to me. And I think that was um, a big realisation and a big acknowledgement of my own privilege. Yeah, I've, I've told you this before, but like, I hate 
like t- having to justify um why women need to yes, have education exactly I mean I like I do it makes like I understand why well, I don't even want to say that. Like, I don't understand why it has to be said. I don't understand why people have to justify the women, like, women need an equal, like, the same right as any other person to have an education. And the fact that, like, she got, like, shot in the head and, like, she survived is, like, a miracle. Yes. I think it's amazing. And it's something to be said that she survived and she can go on to speak about the experience and, like, be this amazing figure for women. Yes, I I just, I completely agree with you on the justification thing. Like, why should we need to justify the fact that people, so women are people, should get to go to school, should get to have an education? Why on earth should we justify this? Education has been a basic human right for centuries now, yet half of the population still somehow needs justification to, to experience it. That's crazy. I completely agree with you on that oh, yeah hiya so this is like editing me jumping in but um me and Doris are just getting super passionate about um gender issues and education primarily obviously because of the topic of the episode but next episode will be about um feminism and we'll start a mini series on this podcast about feminism and the ranging If you liked hearing us talk about this, then get excited for the next episode. Yeah, so, well, now we've just gone into, like, (laughs) talking about developing nations. I feel so shallow about, like, the next, like, part. (laughs) Because I was going to talk about, like, we lived in, like, obviously different countries. We grew up Mm -hmm. in different systems. And that was really... I mean, once I became aware of, like, the education system in my country, I didn't learn about, you know, like, Japanese history. I didn't really learn about even American history until A-level. And it just kind of shows that political agenda. Like, we can look at, like, these extreme nations, extreme points in history where education has been manipulated. But this, like, political agenda within countries... And for me, it's really interesting... I mean, at least in England. I'm not sure about um, Belgrade, but, like, in Serbia. There are political system is very intertwined with our education like it's very evident I mean I'll talk about Michael Gove and everyone I mean everyone has an opinion on Michael Gove but for me it's very interesting that he served as the education secretary for four years and then he was the justice secretary for a year like 2015 to 2016 and then the environment secretary from 2017 to 2019 I mean those really don't have a much of a correlation so it's weird to me to think that he's like an expert in all of them to be like a political figure and then like more specifically like he studied English at uni and so he didn't study like for example like you like educational sciences or anything that's like specific to education development or anything like that so it's it's very like telling when I look at the UK's like political system how education is heavily influenced by politics like it's not hidden no not at all it's it's evident and it's evident here in Serbia as well I mean just to to go along with your with your Michael Gove point the current minister of education in Serbia his name is Mladen Šarčević and he studied geography and had absolutely nothing to do with education for his entire life and was just 
placed in this position because his party needed an important seat in government. So <laughs> he is, yeah, the sitting <laughs> Minister of Education who makes basically all of the decisions regarding the national education system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love your tone when you say that. It's so funny. Um, yeah, so... And that kind of forms so like our curriculum. So I know that we wanted to talk about curriculum and and what we teach, which we kind of kind of briefly spoke on in history and how we learn history. But even which I mentioned in another episode, like creative subjects, so drama, also having everything in distinct different categories, yes. having maths very separated from art and not having anything really combined or holistic. Mm-hmm. And I really like, I mean, I think it was, you were definitely the person who told me this about, um, like, the project-based learning. Yes, I wanted to go on a, tan- on a rant right now so when you mentioned everything being sort of separate and divided. Our, the way that we all learn, I mean, it's the same, obviously, it's the same in Serbia. Everything is divided. Um, every, nothing is sort of holistic. Nothing is intertwined or, or integrated. Um, but this, the way that we learn, so the um, grade, subject and class system was actually constructed in the 17th century by this guy called Jan Amos Komensky. Oh and if we, yeah, and if we, like his anglicized name is John Amos um, Comenius, I believe, and he's from um, what is now Czech Republic. And he created this mm-hmm. system. And he, he, we have just been sort of running with it for how long? Four centuries. <laughs> um, <laughs> different yeah. systems have been thought of, you know, there's this like integrated learning system and the project based system. And, um, you know, they were all kind of tried out, but sort of let go. And some in, in certain places, they're still alive, but mostly in the early education, um, early childhood education, rather than actual schooling. Um, and I'm just wondering as to why, you know, there's these all of these different um, ways of learning. And I think that for the modern day, I think it would be more interesting to have these subjects be integrated and to learn based on certain projects that integrate more subjects um, or more subject matter. I just think that that would be a more creative, holistic, just, you know, logistical way of learning that would make me maybe have our knowledge base not be so divided and maybe help us um, think in a way that sort of integrates all of the knowledge we have and link it to our worldly experience. Yeah, yeah, I was, I mean, when I initially think about it, I'm like, it makes sense, they're building, they, they want to build students that will go into society for, like, to participate in society and, like, jobs at specific career paths and things. But yeah. then I then I rethink really on that and I'm like, not really like that's not really the most effective way to do it at all so like if we take project-based learning that's something that would be like immensely useful in career and like working in groups and working in different aspects and building all these different skills because like every career has projects like that's how careers happen like in jobs right and certainly in the modern day jobs aren't really so narrow not narrow-minded I feel like that's weird to say but it's it's not just your sp- one specific field it's not just one vocation anymore you know most yeah. jobs yeah. especially I'm, I'm talking western world currently just you know yeah <laughs> but um yeah I think most jobs actually require just knowledge of, of all of these subjects and just a way of more a way of thinking that is that helps us 
connect everything. And I think we can learn that through integrated learning rather than rather than having our subjects be divided. We no longer live in a world that requires such divided specific vocational knowledge, I don't think. Definitely that the whole idea that we, you know, study and then we narrow down, we go at uni and we study one thing which will lead us into a career path for our lives. That's not really anymore the picture at mm-hmm. all. Um, and I mean, even in uh, in UK, like the statistic for an average household to earn the income they need, many households cannot survive on a single job. Mm-hmm. Like there will be multiple jobs in the household. And even if we talk within jobs, then you have projects. But even if your everyday life, you know, on Monday you're working one job, on Tuesday you're working a different job, or even within the day you're working different shifts at different jobs, we're not really like taught in the way that's going to really adapt to that system at all agreed i think just an interesting statistic that they did in serbia is how many people actually stick to their career and you know it's surprisingly not that many it was a little just a little over a third so more than two-thirds of people actually have a career switch that was you know it was it was by choice or by necessity it doesn't really matter for what we're talking about but we don't tend to stick to the same job and the same career as much anymore because we live in a capitalist society where the market dictates what jobs are going to be available for you so yeah yeah yeah, I think we just need a a sort of a broader and more connected knowledge base and you know I do appreciate what John Amos Comenius did for all of us and (laughs) but I do think that maybe it's time for for some someone different to be dictating the way that education works (laughs) yeah yeah on the base of like curriculum and like the actual like content and like substance that we learn um I don't know about you but like I didn't learn about different like socio-economic backgrounds or even really about many different religions or at least other religions in general and cultures and racial like backgrounds and things like that what about you no we didn't (laughs) learn (laughs) we didn't learn about this either I think um really it was it was like our education was so decontextualized from our everyday lives that we went into school learning about um algae and the pythagorean theorem or (laughs) which obviously are things that are useful and interesting but um it's like they had absolutely no touch with our lives um And so now when I'm researching education and learning about educational systems and how they work, they seem to have this very big bias against um, people of a lower socioeconomic status. And it's it's like um, the sort of middle class and upper class are rewarded for simply being born with more more money and more access and... um, a knowledge base and a language discourse that's more appropriate to what schools um, are asking for. So there's this very interesting theory about um, language codes. The research actually points that uh, the middle class school pupils um, have this thing called elaborate language code and that the lower class students have a restricted language code. Now, what this means is that lower class children tend to speak in a more casual 
manner. So they tend to use a lot of pronouns um, and they don't tend to, so they tend to say, oh, I just got that rather than I just got a ruler. You know what I mean? And it seems that um, schools tend to favor the elaborate code and that actually children of a lower income family get lower grades and, you know, don't really succeed as much in education for something as basic as using a lot of pronouns and speaking in a more casual way. (laughs) So this is just, yeah, this is just quite, uh, you know, it's a small example. Then obviously middle and upper class children also have access to more material and more information and experiences and they can go to museums and the theater and the cinema more often and they're just exposed to all of these resources that helps them be better in school Um, and also school tends to be more important um, to their family whereas lower class families tend to actually focus on things such as work and money and they don't they can't really afford to Um, expose their children to all of these different resources and build on their experience which then helps them be do better in school so schools are really kind of um, proven to be discriminating against um, lower class children and that's just the way that our educational system is and then this sort of doesn't enable them to to go through an educational system quite successfully and then you know go to college or a university and then it doesn't allow them to get a good job and then this cycle of lesser lower income just continues yeah that's so interesting I'd always thought about you know if you have to pay for school or not if you pay for uni and things Mm -hmm. like that but I never thought about the small details like that which have a huge impact I really I've never thought of that so yeah. yeah, there's so many examples of it. And that's actually one of the, the way that education kind of helps support racism, because um, a lot of uh, minority ethnic groups tend to fall into the lower income categories. And so right. the, when, when we're doing standardized testing, we're all, it doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic, your ethnic, your racial background. You just do the same test. But these tests are kind of biased towards um, middle class and upper class children for reasons that I've stated and numerous other reasons. And so they tend, the yeah. children from the lower economic status families tend to do worse. And when we put that to paper, it seems that these ethnic and racial minorities tend to do worse in school than the predominantly white privileged children. And so then what happens is some politician that has an agenda says, well, you know, black people don't t- don't do as well in schools. They're just less intelligent and, you know, they deserve to be treated the way that they're treated. They deserve to be discriminated right. against because we're just more intelligent. And this is actual things that have happened. <laughs> um, and this is the way that yeah. um, certain American politicians, I'm talking about the past, not right now, um, used, yeah. to, <laughs> used to support slavery. Yeah, we just need to yeah. change up the way that we're learning and the way that we're teaching and change up the way that we're testing so that everyone actually gets a chance to show what they can learn and how they learn best. 
Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting here is like, so you know how like different, um, it's like shown to say that like, if you speak different languages, people actually think differently because like there's different like ways of expressing things in vocabulary. Yes. And I mean, I don't know the facts, but like surely like being in a different religion or a different culture also has that impact. Yes. And so it's interesting for me, just like in a little like thought experiment to think if a um, country has a education system which is obviously made around like their majority whatever the like group like the majority group is that mm-hmm. and then you have a system which is kind of streamlined like the standardized testing but then you put all these different kids from all these different backgrounds different maybe speaking different languages maybe different cultural maybe different um religions and like ethnic backgrounds and everything like that who have a different way of thinking and like different way of expressing and then you put them through the same system and you expect to get like same results yes out of everyone Mm -hmm. that is so interesting to me that you point this out because there was actually an attempt made to make a um, zero culture standardized test. So it's a standardized test that claims that the cultural effects of someone's background won't influence the test results at all. And turns okay. out that's impossible. <laughs> and there was a very interesting <laughs> example from Serbia, actually, because this test was te- was um, tested <laughs> all around the world mm-hmm. um, in, in an effort to see whether it really is Um, like a culture zero test and (laughs) there was this um, test done in um, a mountain region of Serbia that's known for creating all of these um, different patterns in like textile material and so they, they did this culture zero test there and it seems that these little ladies who made these patterns did really horribly in the pattern portion of the test so they were testing um the logic of people taking of test takers by yeah asking you to you know choose a pattern that's you know logically follows the pattern that was shown to you and they all kept showing things that just do not logically make sense and afterwards they did a follow-up interview and they asked them to elaborate on their answers and they just said well we knew that it doesn't you know, it, it's not the most logical answer. However, it's the best looking pattern. And so we were picking what looks <laughs> best with the other patterns. And so this is just, a, 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 you know, it's a very silly example when you think about it, but it just really shows that even in a country that's a part of the Western society, you just can't make a culture zero test because, well, for example, there's this little ladies whose job it is to pick the best patterns for textiles. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I think that's just something that we need to to think about. And actually, we shouldn't be trying to remove culture and cultural background and their in its influence. We should be celebrating it and valuing it and finding a way for it to work for an educational system yeah. for everyone. And I think a wonderful example of that is the New Zealand um, early childhood um, curriculum or framework. Do tell us. Yeah, it's called Tevariki. And it's, it's, I mean, forgive my pronunciation. <laughs> um, but it's <laughs> so interesting. So obviously, New Zealand, um, until 1996, had um, an early childhood uh, education framework that was very similar to, um, I would say, you know, the ones that we experienced. And then 
they did a Maori culture revival. So Maori is obviously an ethnic group, a minority ethnic group of indigenous people to New Zealand who have yeah. been um, oppressed and discriminated against by the dominant um, ethnic group in New Zealand. However, they started uh, this revival of Maori culture program in the 90s and they created this Tevariki um, early childhood care framework which is based on the Maori culture but it's for everyone for the entire population and it's oh, okay. um, basically they used um, elements of Maori culture and the um, socio-reconstructive theory um, of education and they created this system that treats children as competent creative thinkers who learn based on experience they raise the salary of um, the early childhood care specialists and the educationalists so the kindergarten teachers that work with the kids and they actually yeah. made them the creators of the curriculum so New Zealand made this amazing framework which celebrates cultural diversity and multiculturality and um, just the fact that they all live in this society and they should respect and value all of these cultures within it um, and then they let the teachers themselves form the curriculum form so what the children are going to learn and how they're going to learn it based on yeah. the context and based on their society and their community. I love that. And I find that so interesting, yeah. So um, after New Zealand, other countries actually um, chose to try and develop a similar system where they put in this framework but actually let educators and leaders from local communities influence the curriculum and make the curriculum almost with the children. Um, and based yeah. on their interests and, you know, local characteristics. And so for another shining example I find to be Sweden and hopefully soon Serbia, because the ministry has just approved a similar a similar early childhood education system. So oh, I am just, yeah. So I think that, you know, we were talking, I feel like throughout this whole podcast about the kind of negative effects that education can have. Um, but I think it's important to look at education really as just this powerful system that we can really use for, for to set a positive example and to make positive changes. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, how we use it and what are these goals and what are these objectives that we're trying to, to reach. I love that. I mean, that's a beautiful note to leave this on with this positive aspect. And it's just, it reminds me of this phrase. I can't remember where I saw it. And it said, if the system's not working for us, we shouldn't just try and like slowly, you know, iterate on that system. We should think of a new system that works yeah. for us and that w we come up and, and we're happy with. And when you speak about these things, I really see that in, in these projects, like, so New Zealand, Sweden and, and Serbia, like, that I really, I can really see that they've thought, how's the best way for us to do this? And they haven't said, how do we change the current system? It's from, from ground zero, let's create a new system which works. And that's just beautiful. Yeah, it's a complete, like, paradigm transformation. Yeah. I mean, New Zealand is just amazing, though. They're Prime Minister. Oh, yes, that's why I thought of the example. I was like, there's so much deserved hype around this woman whose leadership helped mm. get them out of the pandemic. I was like, I just want to, you know, throw in a little example about New Zealand and hopefully get people interested in them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think we should leave it there since it's like such a lovely positive note. Yeah, we can. Okay. Well, it was lovely to have you on board. I I love having conversations with you because I mean you're just so knowledgeable. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is this was so interesting. Yeah, and hopefully we get you on like other things and stuff like that to chat around about different subjects. I would love to. Oh, amazing. Okay. Well, that's amazing. And if uh, we'll put together some links and resources that we use to kind of make this episode today, and we'll put it in the show notes, like in the blog post in the show notes, and rate the podcast if you like it. Um, don't if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, contact um, contact the Get Curious uh, email if you'd like to get in touch with either of us and continue the conversation. But um, thank you so much, Dora, for coming on board and. Um, Let's say bye then. Thanks for inviting me and I would love to hear from everyone. Bye. Bye.